it's not every day that you get to have a conversation about two of the best subjects ever, the gospel and marriage. Great to have you both with us, Chad and Emily. Well, thank you for having us. Yes, thank you. It's nice to be here. Oh, thank you. Before we get started, maybe it could be fun if you both introduce each other. And whilst you do, tell us one thing about the other person that would be a big surprise to our listeners. <laughs> uh, ladies first. Okay. Uh, Chad has developed a culinary specialty that's cheese and crackers. And if you put the cheese upside down, you get this. I mean, the cracker upside down, you get the salty side um, at its peak. Uh, Very good, Chad. That's true. And just it, it adds a lot to life to know that. Uh, Emily won a <laughs> riflery competition against a, a bunch of West Point cadets. Uh, and uh, she thinks that the right amount of scotch tape uh, can fix anything but a sinful heart. So those are my Emily tidbits. I, I don't know which one's going to come in more handy for the rest of your lives together. <laughs> <laughs> oh, very good. You've written a brand new book, Gospel Shaped Marriage, Grace for Sinners to Love Like Saints. How did you guys first meet and how and when did you decide to get married? Well, um, uh, we met at Westminster Seminary. Emily was a new Christian. Uh, uh, and uh, after a couple of years of attending sort of nine Bible studies and sermons a week, uh, she thought there might be a more organized way of high speed catching up for the Christian life. So she came to Westminster Theological Seminary. I was in my second year uh, and I couldn't help but notice a, a pretty girl on campus. Uh, as, as I remember things, it, it took me about a month to know that I would like to spend uh, a lot of time with Emily. It took her about five more months of friendship uh, to realize that she was willing to date me uh, and we were married within the year. We live in a culture, don't we, where sex, living together and even marriage has become redefined from what the Bible tells us. Why is it important that Christians hold the line on this and how do we do that? It's, well, first of all, it's God's word. It's, it's God's word clearly teaches that there's um, no sex outside of marriage, but uh, there is sex inside within marriage. That's the place for it. It's a part of God's good um, created order, a blessing for marriage. It's really important to hold the line on this because um, it can learn, it can lead to a lot of heartache and pain for one thing, if we don't follow God's commands in this area, um, especially knowing that we're a temple of the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit lives in us. If, um, and so we want to honor that relationship we have with the Holy Spirit. I, I, and just, just to, to build on that, you know, first Corinthians seven thirty nine assures us that we're free to marry anyone as long as we marry in the Lord. Um, uh, so uh, that that's that's the Lord setting, get, giving us really clear direction, and we know that when the Lord gives us even a hint of His will, we want to follow that. That that's that's clear direction. You could also make an argument that there's a sort of a cultural argument uh, to the importance of marriage. I mean, we've been experimenting with marriage minimalism uh, for some decades now, and uh, all kinds of things are falling apart. But that would be a different kind of argument than the clear argument of God's word. Yeah. He means yeah. we as a culture, not we as a married couple. <laughs> <laughs> Thank That's you for clarifying true. that, Emily. Yeah. 
<laughs> when looking for someone to marry, what should we be looking for in that person according to scripture? Well, well if, if we're taking turns, uh, sex and number marry matter in marriage. We're, we're to, uh, you know, one woman is to marry one man or vice versa. Well, uh, yes, as, as we're looking as we're looking for someone, those those are the only proper parameters. Uh, race and nationality do not matter in marriage. Uh, friendship counts in marriage because uh, one of the purposes of marriage is companionship. Looks ought to matter to the looker. Um, uh, age matters a little bit. Uh, we we certainly need to think about about that. Uh, but most of all, a real and living faith must matter to every Christian who wishes by God's grace to be faithful to the Lord and, and to, to a spouse. I think those are the, 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 the basics of what we're looking for. What, am I missing something, Emily? Um, no, I think those are the basics. I would add um, that, you know, when I'm looking for a husband, I'm looking for somebody who is fulfilling some of what God calls a husband to be already, an, an honorable man, um, a man that shows a degree of leadership ability, um, somebody that I already find easy to respect because I know I'm going to have to respect this person. Um, and likewise, I would recommend to a man looking for a wife that he look for someone that he finds easy to love, somebody who seems willing to follow his leadership, someone who'd be easy to lead. Um, somebody who prioritizes inner beauty over outer beauty. Um, so just look for godly qualities. They don't have to be fully matured and developed, but see that that's what that person values and that that process has already started. Yeah, yeah. That's really helpful. Thank you so much, Emily. What would you say to a Christian that's dating a non-Christian, but they've convinced themselves that they should marry that person? Maybe I'll, maybe I'll go out of turn and, and start here. We, we address this in our book, and we acknowledge that sometimes God so orders the events of our lives that, that, a Christ, that Christians find themselves alone in prayer, alone in reading the Bible, alone in the pew. Uh, so, sometimes we can't help but have only one parent. Uh, praying at a child's bedside, one parent uh, bringing a child to church, one parent praying for faith and repentance, uh, one parent prioritizing what's eternal over what's what what's what's temporal, and, and all the while the other parent is silently not supporting or even vocally opposing uh, what what the other uh, what the Christian parent's doing. Uh, in God's providence, that can happen. But for a Christian to plan that, to, to enter a situation where that is the case, hoping it one day might not be the case, that's foolish. And God loves us so much that he forbids us from doing that in 2 Corinthians 6, uh, chapter 14. I, 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 we also add in, in our book that we, we really do need to remind ourselves, and sometimes we need to remind people that we love, that if the concept of evangelistic dating has plausibility, even fascination with us, uh, that's a sign of weakness. It's, it's not a sign of strength. Uh, cults flirt to convert. Christians must not use romance for outreach. Uh, yeah. We've already lost the battle if we think we can honor God by disobeying him. So yeah. we, 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 in, in, in our book, we really do encourage people to put Christ first in their lives, uh, and then we'll find guidance in our engagements and a model for our marriages. 
Um, Very good. And I would add to that to say the Lord will provide. Um, The Lord will provide. If we think we need to go outside of his provision to look for a non-Christian, then our, our relationship with the Lord is really being undermined. And, and that's where we, we want to start with a, with a trusting relationship with the Lord um, first. Yeah. Yeah. We know, don't we, that we can have fellowship with other believers who differ on secondary things, but what advice would you have for a couple that differ theologically? Um, well, it's tricky. I will say that we met in seminary, so I could check out his theology and see <laughs> on even the finer points if we're we good. But so I am sympathetic to the difficulty that there can be when we differ theologically on something. Um, I would start by saying, you know, there may be a place for discussing those differences, but I would keep that to a limited place. Once you know those differences are there, don't rehash them regularly, but come up with um, some limited place and time where you can discuss them um, and engage with each other, but keep that very limited and then respect each other. I, I think, Emily, you'd also say that we need to build narratives of, and, and, and narratives of respect uh, when it's so easy to have a narrative of disrespect kind of running in our subconscious, like that's stupid. Why don't they see that? Right. I mean, that's, that's something that you work very hard on. Uh, I work very hard not to think of my husband as stupid. <laughs> <laughs> and she's stuck in a marriage where that's a, that's a lot of work. <laughs> so if, 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 you know, if you're dating somebody and you're aware of these secondary things, would, would you still suggest that it, it would be healthy to get married? I mean, is, is this a reason not to get married to somebody because of secondary, you, you know, sort of issues? Well, well I mean, the, the big word in the question is secondary, isn't it? Um, is, is, uh, is your understanding of the sacrament of baptism and the sort of child rearing questions that are attached to that, is that secondary? Uh, it might be till your first baby's born. Um, and, and then it's really not anymore. I mean, it's, it's a really, it, it becomes very practical. How do you, and, and I mean, just to stick to the parenting theme, if one of you is an Arminian, the other is a Calvinist, it doesn't feel secondary uh, when one is praying, Lord, may my child never know a day when she does not know that she's a sinner and that Christ is the savior for sinners and, and, you know, died, died for her or the other ones praying for a conversion experience uh, for their, for their child. Um, and I, uh, and doesn't think that, that, that a child growing up in a Christian home is a Christian unless they have some kind of Damascus road or mini Damascus road conversion experience which is often not the story of a, a child growing up in a covenant home. So, so, so I'm just sticking, there, there's just two things there. Yeah. Um, it's really so, challenging. I would say for a minister or in, if someone's intending to be a pastor, these secondary issues are of a higher order. Um, I would say if someone's not going to be a pastor, 
you at least need to be able to agree on a church where you can both worship. Um, and if you can't do that, um, and, and where one person isn't sort of, you know, kind of breathing between their teeth each worship service, uh, if you can't do that, 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 then that doesn't work. There's a lot of wisdom here. Thank you. Thank you, Chad. You write about marriage in its fourfold state in your book. Tell us about that, guys. That was Emily's idea. I I love seeing the big picture. Um, so I like looking at marriage um, in creation before the fall, then um, after the fall, then um, and then or, or you know, before before somebody is saved, then after somebody is saved, and then what it will be like in heaven. Um, in particular, I would say it's useful to think about how um, in this stage of redemptive history, there will be sin. We are going to sin against each other. So it helps set some realistic expectations. Um, but then we also have the Holy Spirit. So we have a high calling to forgive one another. And there is hope that we can change. We can grow. We don't need to despair. The focus should be on our growth first, not on our trying to accelerate our spouse's growth. But we can grow. I can become a better wife. Um, and I can pray that the Lord will work in Chad, too. Um, and the Lord hears prayers. And then lastly, um, there's heaven. And that's where the marriage is going to be perfect, not here. So um, that helps me not make an idol of marriage or expect too much from it. Um, but to look forward to that perfect marriage that is to come. And what do you mean by the perfect marriage? What do I mean Smile by the best questions? Is that, is that yes, you can. Well, it'll be between <laughs> Christ and the church. The church is the bride of Christ. And it's yeah. when he returns, we will have the perfect husband in Christ. And the church will be perfectly sanctified and be the perfect bride without uh, spot, stain, or blemish. Yeah, I, I nothing really to add so much as just a reflection on Emily's starting point. What, when marriage is hard, we, we sometimes approach one another with the hopelessness that was really only fitting for Adam and Eve as they looked at each other before God came to them and after they sinned. Right? That, that darkest of times uh, before the gospel was given when, when all they knew was lostness. Yeah, yeah, there's no hope there. But but for, for Christians, for believers, we need to keep telling ourselves that that if someone is in, uh, in not in the, the garden variety marriage, not in a fallen, not in a fallen and hopeless marriage, but but in in a grace-filled marriage, we believe in the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit can do great things for ourselves and for others. And that that's why. You know, in addition to what Emily's saying or as a reflection on what she's saying, we think, you know, thinking about not just life in its fourfold state, but marriage in its fourfold state is helpful. Yeah, 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 really good, really good. What practical advice do you have for newlywed couples in how to leave a family home well? <laughs> well, as Emily says, we just moved to England. 
you know, that, that's that's what we did. Um, I mean, Emily, what what would be some of your bullet points? Um, for for the, I would say though, for a new couple, just in general, how to lead the family well would be to pray for one another, um, to laugh together to find activities that you can do together um, where you're talking together, where it's relatively low stress, um, just to build the relationship. And some of those things you can do together are serving together. Have people over, um, go to a nursing home together, just find ways you can serve. So I didn't want to interrupt you because I think those are great ways to lead the family. But I think you said leave the family. Leave the family. Home. I... Yeah. Oh. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So those are great leave. leading ideas. Yeah, yeah. Oh, so in terms of leaving, leaving and leaving. Yeah, leaving. There's some leaving. bonus answers there, Emily, for a different question. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Uh, so, for so leaving what... and leaving. Um, there you go. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um. Well, then think about who you reach out to first when you have a problem or if you have a joy to share. Is it, you know, perhaps before you were married, it was your mother or it was your sister or somebody from your original family. Now think of your spouse first. And it might take a little, even a little bit of effort to retrain your um, first idea and you know pause call your spouse first um consider too how much time you're spending on the phone with a parent um and you might need to limit that and but still talk to them um honor them but put your spouse first yeah 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 i, I mean just very basically don't live with your parents if you can help it it's not always an option. And there are cultures where it's normative to, to have extended family living in one house. We, we, we do think it does inhibit leaving and cleaving um, yeah. uh, to, to be in the same house as your parents. Um, and, uh, you know, not a, a Emily has also, uh, I, I think, done well in not complaining about me to her parents. Um, she'll sometimes talk to my mother about me, uh, but not her mother. And, and she knows that my mother knows how to pray for me uh, yeah. and knows all my faults in Technicolor anyway. Uh, so just, just a lot of care there and how we talk about each other to family members, just, just yeah. prioritizing this horizontal relationship over other horizontal relationships. Yeah. Were you and joking when you said that you actually moved abroad? Did that actually practically happen for you guys? Oh, yeah, yeah, I did actually. Seven years. <laughs> you did? Yeah, really? yeah. Wow. Oh, we lived in Cambridge. Oh, okay. Yeah. Nice. So, so, you know, the university lowered its standards and had me in as a PhD student. Uh, and then no doubt due to nepotistic hiring, they kept me on for a few years as a fellow in the history department. Um, Excellent. So, so that, 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 uh, you know, added up to seven years. Yeah. yeah. Very good. Brilliant. What can churches do better to help prepare couples for marriage? I mean, I think a lot of church, I think we both think that a lot of churches do a pretty good job that the way in which pastoral counseling has become more mainstream as a prerequisite uh, before uh, people get married. 
Um, uh, sometimes there are uh, churches will have home groups and Sunday school classes where couples can meet with each other, fellowship hours. Actually, one of the strong best things for a marriage is for married people to have friends. Um, and uh, it's not the purpose of the church to be a social club, but the church does bring together a lot of people who could otherwise be lonely. Um, I, I, I think uh, I, I helped to sort of sort a Sunday school schedule. A lot of not all English churches do Sunday school, but it's an American thing. Um, and it's it's kind of an additional hour of instruction in addition to one or two services. And and once a quarter, we would have a session either on parenting or marriage. And we would also try and design it so it'd be useful for single people so that they would know how to help pray for us, maybe look ahead to a marriage, uh, support friends, and so on. Um, but uh, those those are a few items. I uh, Emily. No, I, I think that's good. I think sometimes as a new couple to have um, time with older couples, it can give you a few ideas. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. I, I suppose we, we, we try and muddle our way through, through what we call family devotions after our evening meal. Um, and uh, many uh, Christians don't come from Christian homes or come from a home where they didn't do this. And, and just seeing us read the Bible, try and think about it for a few moments, pray about it. Uh, we're Presbyterians. We sometimes throw in a catechism question uh, that synthesizes some doctrine um, yeah. and, uh, and, and, and maybe sing a hymn if, if we're not sort of fighting about who's going to play the piano or, uh, and, and so on. Uh, and, and that's helped married couples to get a vision for, how family devotions might be done and sometimes how it might be done better. Uh, that is to say better than we're doing uh, in their own yeah. attempts. So <laughs> that's really helpful. Thank you. Really good stuff. Uh, husband, you touched on this earlier, Emily, husbands are to love our wives as Christ loved the church. What does that look like? Patience. I would say patience. Um, Jesus is patient with the church. He is patient with us. And aren't we all grateful for it? So husbands are to be patient with their wives. Um, I just have a hunch that some husbands may, you know, we naturally just want our spouse to be a little more sanctified than she is or than he is. So to be patient with her in that process, realizing you're going to see your wife's sin more than anybody else, most likely. So show Christ's patience, show his forgiveness, his leadership um, in forgiving, and also be willing to suffer for her. Um, That, you know, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. A husband is called to lay down his wife, his life for his wife. Um, So it's a high calling. It's a difficult calling. I'd also say to um, not be condemning, but um, because Jesus is not condemning. And sometimes wives hear something a husband says, and we may come across as overly sensitive, but the impression is that is condemning. So learn to understand what impact you're having on your wife 
and try and accommodate to the way she hears things, even if it's yeah. inconvenient. <laughs> um, that's one way you can love your wife is um, try and speak to her even in her language or on her terms. Yeah, yeah. really helpful. Um, also, I'd say lead by example. If you want your wife to pray more, then you pray more. If you'd like your yeah. wife to read the Bible more, then you read the Bible more. Um, and then she will likely grow under that. And I think the yeah. Lord likes to work in that order. Yeah, very good. We live in an age where the word submission has become almost a swear word. Tell us about how submission should be viewed biblically in marriage. Yeah, so, so I think it's probably my turn. Uh, so we, we, when, when we're, first of all, before um, we get to the section on marriage and parenting and employment relations in Ephesians 5 and 6, the Apostle Paul calls us to submit to one another. So there is a kind of mutual respect going on that leads to uh, serving one another in each of the three relationships that he talks about. Uh, there's a mindfulness towards one another. Um, and, and that's a kind of governing dynamic for all relationships uh, in society in the church, or at least it, it ought to be. Um, that, that There's an insight that we got by reading an antiquated book entitled Domestical Duties. Uh, by by an old Puritan doesn't get everything right. Uh, of course, we don't either. Uh, but he's got some insights that that was one of them. Uh, so there's there's mutual submission and 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 marriage, which means we ought to have a lot of you first arguments. Um, uh, no, no. What would what would what would you like? Uh, not what would I like. Um, it it also means that. Um, when when we're thinking through uh, marriage related questions um uh, or or duties rather uh, that that when when i see uh, emily's call to submit to me and respect to me i want to say to myself um how can i make that as easy as possible for her yeah. um yeah. and when emily sees it to be my calling because the Apostle Paul shares this information with her too, uh, to love her, she, she's going to be thinking about, you know, what, what's it like to be lovable? What can I do to make my husband's calling easier? So in this dynamic that we have here, our, our principal concern is not to say, so thankful that God revealed my spouse's duties. I can remind them of that constantly. Won't that be a blessing to Emily to tell her daily that she needs to submit to me and vice versa? Uh, no, what we want to do is take that information, see how can we use that to, to sweeten the other's duties. All that to say, that's where we start. Um, but the wife is uniquely called to excel in submission, uh, in following my lead, because a marriage has a head, it has, it has a leader. Um, and, uh, and, and, and so that's knowing that something that she is called to i i always want to be thinking about how can i sweeten that task i i i want to do that by listening to her by respecting her by considering her thoughts uh, by as, as much as possible in life making decisions uh, jointly 
by stewarding our gifts together uh, out of love for the Lord, by seeking to grow together, uh, by not standing on my rights, by being careful about my words. Um, but then Emily also approaches this expecting a blessing, um, uh, saying, look, if I, if I can, if I honor Chad, uh, Emily sometimes likes to say, I get two for the price of one. By honoring Chad, I also get to honor the Lord. That's a privilege. Um, and uh, the, 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 Lord, the Lord will bless that. And, and by the way, we also, you know, we, I, I suppose this is just kind of way in which we live. It's not something we, we talk about a lot. We talk about it a little bit more because we just wrote a book on marriage. But it, we're aware of the fact that submission is not the same as agreement. Uh, mm -hmm. th there are times when just a decision needs to be made. And Emily might not agree with me, um, but mm -hmm. but uh, she, she'll she'll still she'll still follow my lead. If if we wait until we always agree, then there's not there's not really any submission there at all. Um, so she does her best to follow willingly, and sometimes she knows that I, I'm about to make a blunder, and she's tried to persuade me otherwise. I'm too you know clueless. No, not clueless. She's clued me in. Uh, I'm too stubborn to realize it. And later I'll have to come back to her and say, you know, I just did a terrible job here. You, you were mentioning something so important. I wasn't listening. Uh, it's often have to do, has to do with parenting. And now I got to go back and repent and try and fix the damage. Um, so, yeah. yeah. Very helpful. You got anything to add to that, Emily? I do have something to add to this. Um, it's just an illustration that comes to mind. There's a harmony in a relationship between the head and the body that I, I like to think of Simone Biles or another amazing athlete. It's just beautiful. It's God glorifying when the head and the body work together um, and they both have important roles. Um, and as a wife, even though at times I'm in the position of submitting to him, that's how it works well. Um, another image though, that helps me is the image of a two-headed snake. I have pulled up that image on the internet. It is one of the most repulsive images. And it just reminds me, I do not want to be that second head, just fighting. And it, yeah. I, I don't want to do that. And that just helps me say, no, I want to be more like Simone Biles and you know, submit, <laughs> work together. Yeah. Yeah. It's helpful. Yeah. One snake head is terrifying enough, right? We definitely don't want to. Don't want a two head. And no. you know, we, we do, we do work well together. So it's not often that I need to um, kind of get myself in my place, but there's times I need that encouragement because um, you know, we, we lean not on our own understanding, but in all our ways, acknowledge um, the Lord and he will direct our paths. Yeah, that's yeah, really good. Thank you, Emily. What makes a marriage fundamentally gracious? Uh, boy, uh, Emily can just say this really well, but let, let me just get, get us started. Um, I mean, it's it's God's grace that makes the marriage fundamentally gracious, not not our stupendous grace, stupendous graciousness. Um, we, we want to reflect what the Lord has, the grace the Lord has shown to us. Um, we, we try and remind ourselves that that God's grace is rich, 
and he has richly poured out grace upon us. So we shouldn't act like misers when it comes time to dispense grace. Um, there's, there's no lack of grace at our disposal. The Holy Spirit can help us show grace and the fruits of grace. Um, and, and so just remembering the richness uh, that we have in Christ is a great place to start. Uh, and, and Emily, why don't, why don't you keep this running though? Yes. And I would say, so um, just as we've received grace from God in the gospel in Christ, we want to share that with anybody. I want to share that with strangers, but there's something special about sharing it with a spouse over the long term, um, because then we can see the transformation in a person. We also see our own limits when sometimes it's hard to show grace. Sometimes it's easier to show grace to a stranger on the street than it is to the person who's, you know, sinned against me yesterday. Or um, so there's, it, it helps us um, depend upon God more um, to yeah. keep drawing upon his grace, keep showing that grace. Um, marriage is a wonderful context to show God's grace um, to his glory. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and and just that makes me think about John Chrysostom, uh, who in his commentary on 1 Corinthians 13, uh, pauses to talk about how, how the kind of gracious love that the Apostle Paul talks about uh, transforms both the one who received that love and the one who shows it. And that's just the Lord's kindness uh, to make sort of grace work like that, that, that that when we love someone else, when we overlook a fault, uh, when we're when we're patient, waiting for repentance, when we're willing to repent and not get something back in exchange, all of that actually changes not just the one who's being loved, but the one the one who is loving. Um, and it's it's great to experience, and we're still working on that. Yeah, this has been absolutely fantastic. Time has absolutely flown by. Um, I've got some really important questions I want to ask you. So just give me some quick fire answers just so we can get through some more gold before you guys have to shoot off. How can we avoid marriage becoming an idol? Mm-hmm. Well, well, this is where, uh, this is why up front we put in the marriage in this fourfold state. Um, yeah. uh, the, there's, there's more to marriage and single people and married people can, can uh, turn marriage into an idol. Um, but our Lord Jesus said something that's not for super saints, it's for all saints. And that is, there'll come a day when, when we're not married uh, or give, given in marriage. Uh, we'll all be married to Christ. Uh, and our marriage is intended, among other things, to better prepare us for that day. Uh, so that heavenly perspective is useful. Yeah. yeah. And I would add worship well. Keep worshiping God, and that will keep you from making idols. Yeah so, yeah, so a marriage retreat weekend where you're just about yourself and you're not even going to church, that, that's going to that's gonna begin to turn marriage into an idol, if I can just kind of throw that out there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> we live in a culture today where people are often really busy. How do you guys protect that time that you can, you can have together? Well, we're supposed to be quick here, so let me, let me, let me just jump in. Uh, I don't take Emily out enough in the busyness of work and family life. 
but we have protected one little feature of our life. Uh, and, and, and that is uh, Sunday nights after church, we tell the kids to kind of put themselves to bed. Uh, or when they were younger, we did it quite quickly and expeditiously. And we would sit down and eat leftover pizza from our Friday night movie night together. Um, yeah. Occasionally, there'd be other adults in the house, so we'd be chaperoned, or we'd just tell them to go do something else. Um, yeah. But that's the time when we have together. We just kind of review the week. We look forward, uh, you know, look into each other's eyes over reheated pizza. Um, and uh, just just kind of keeping that going uh, through the years. It's a small thing, inexpensive. It's meaningful. Yeah. yeah. What's the most important thing for engaged or newly married couples to take away from your new book? Hope. Emily? Hope, hope and humor. I think hope and humor. Um, I think a good sense of humor goes a long way. I hope that um, new couples can laugh together and um, and be hopeful in Christ. Um, hopeful that God will use his word and prayer and um, fellowship with other um, believers to help you grow. Very good. And before you go, do you have any closing thoughts? Um, I, I guess our, our closing thought, it, my closing thought, excuse me, is, is that, uh, it's, it's not enough in life to remember that your spouse is a sinner. We also need to remember that God is turning, God, God has made us saints. And so there's, there's a hope for growth throughout married life. And that's what makes a mature married couple just so sweet to watch and to be with. Because the Lord's done that work and it's, and it's, it's well on its way. And we, we can have that ambition for all of us. Uh, God's grace is so extravagant uh, that, that he sanctifies us as well as saves us. Praise the Lord. Yeah. Keep praying and even pray specifically um, and perhaps keep a journal to watch, look for answers. Mm hmm very good. Well, congratulations on writing this book. Really enjoyed speaking to you both today. Um, we're going to make sure that there's a link to your new book in the description below so that you can go and check that out. Thanks again, guys. Really enjoyed it. Thanks, David. Thank you. Oh, thank you. <laughs>